Our last video discussed reasons to think the Spirit of God mentioned in Genesis 1 refers to the Holy Spirit. Those reasons quickly summarized include how the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit do a lot of the same thing in the New and Old Testaments, and how the divinely inspired writer of Luke in the New Testament seemed to think the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was the same as the Spirit of God in Joel 2, 28-32. With that being said, there are many reasons which have been given that could mean the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2 was not the Holy Spirit but rather something else. Today we will discuss those reasons, but before we do that, we need to at least briefly discuss the phrase Spirit of God or Rach Elohim in Hebrew. The phrase is used right after describing the primordial waters. In Hebrew, it is Baruch Elohim. The line on the front with two dots underneath can be ignored for this discussion, but many will be surprised to hear that the Hebrew words translated Spirit of God, Rach Elohim, are actually quite ambiguous. This is important because we can't confidently say that the Rach Elohim is one specific thing, the Holy Spirit, if we can't even narrow it down from a bunch of other options. While we are pretty much certain that Elohim refers to the God of the Israelites and many places of Genesis 1, the word Elohim can also be used of multiple deities, divine beings in general, and even as a superlative like mighty. Considering that nearly all of the mentions of Genesis 1 refer to Elohim as the individual god of the Israelites, many scholars argue this Elohim of Ruach Elohim is heavily associated with the identity of the god of the Israelites. But it's possible that something like the word Elohim in this context could simply refer to something which is divine or simply mighty. Ruach can refer to air, air in motion, blowing, wind, what is empty or transitory, spirit, mind, disposition, temper, breath, or a combination of the word. While in this context, the word ruach being what Hebrew grammarians call in construct, meaning that it could refer to a ruach, a god, a ruach from God, and other options depending on context. Whatever the Ruch is, it can refer to a wind, breath, or spirit sent from God, whether that be God's physical manifestation or a completely different entity like an angel identified with God or simply just those wind sent by God, among other things. For simplicity, we will just use the word of to signify the construct relationship because that's the most common rendering. But it's important to note that this is one of those Hebrew word combinations that can be difficult to translate due to so much ambiguity. If that wasn't bad enough, most English translations will translate the phrase Baruch Elohim as and the Spirit of God, but every first semester Hebrew student will recognize that there is no He in the front of the Hebrew word Ruch. The Hebrew letter He is what typically makes a word definite. While the Hebrew letter He is not required to refer to a specific definite thing like the beginning or the man, as in 
one specific spirit of God rather than an indefinite like a beginning or a man or a spirit of God among many spirits of God. Most of the time when a Hebrew wants to make something definite in a situation like this, they would write a hey, and for them not to use one gives reason to doubt whether the original writer was referring to one specific when breath or the spirit of God. Rather, without a clear contextual reason, it does not make sense to interpret this in a definite way with the word the. As can be seen, just these two Hebrew words alone are extremely ambiguous. There are some things from the text that could narrow things down. Many commentators have noted how Elohim is used to refer to the divine name 35 times in Genesis 1, which points to this use of Elohim also being interpreted in the same way. But there is of course no rule in language where using a word in one specific way in other parts of a passage requires that it be used the same way in all parts. There is no combination of Elohim next to Ruch in the rest of Genesis 1, so that very possibly could have been distinction enough for the writer. The phrase Rach Elohim in other places in the Bible is almost always translated as Spirit of God in most English Bible translations as well. Of course, the phrase is ambiguous in general, so many of the other mentions could be and are often debated. With that being said, one could argue that this is a very different context compared to the other verses given it is a creation text, and therefore the audience might have expected a when similar to how other creation narratives outside the Bible would describe a physical wind. Interpreting as wind also parallels with Genesis 8-1, of which is almost certainly not a coincidence given how the story of Noah's flood clearly parallels Genesis 1. In Genesis 8-1, the wind is what transitions for the floodwaters to settle, but it appears to be a purely natural wind sent by God to almost all translators at least. As with everything in this debate, nothing is straightforward. Dr. Andrew Sargent has correctly mentioned that one would typically think of wind as something that causes more chaos, but in Genesis A1, the chaotic waters of the flood recede because of the wind. For this reason, he concludes the rock in A1 must be some type of special wind, and is therefore both spirit and wind. John Walton notes other times where the motif of the wind is used by God as an instrument when he says, quote, The motif of the wind in chaos scenes is well recognized both in the ancient Near East and in the Bible. In the Babylonian epic Enuma Elish, the sky god Anu creates the four winds that stir up the deep and its goddess Tiamat. There it is, a disruptive wind bringing unrest. This of course is very important to mention given how the Genesis epic parallels the Enuma Elish in so many different ways. Not that the Genesis account is simply copying the Enuma Elish, but it does give evidence that 
Genesis or the Anima Elish is using similar cultural conceptions. And therefore, to see one thing in the Anima Elish adds to the probability that the same thing is happening in Genesis. Walton continues, The same phenomena can be seen in Daniel's vision of the four beasts, where the four winds of heaven were churning up the great sea, a situation that disturbs the beasts there. The motif of the wind used as an instrument of God to master the waters can be found in the Exodus narrative. In these cases, the wind is closely connected with deity and can be seen as something that is disturbing the pattern by creating chaos in the realm of chaos. This interpretation of what the Ruach is doing potentially solves Sargent's conundrum of why wind would seem to calm the chaotic waters of Genesis 8.1. While wind is in itself a chaotic agent, so is water. And therefore, God is sending the wind to conquer the waters, just like in today's world, one might send a dangerous dog. Other scholars have noted how the rest of verse 2 mentions a non-divine earth with water all over it, and therefore a fully natural wind would match the description. But it's also important to note that the primordial waters weren't just waters to the ancient Israelites. When they weren't portrayed as a divine entity, they were often seen as unordered chaos. So it's unlikely the original writer was simply describing a normal body of water. If the waters of Genesis 1-2 are more than water to the ancient Israelite, it's unlikely the wind was simply a meteorological effect. Rather, if what Walton says is true, in both Genesis 1-2 and 8-1, God could have sent the wind to defeat the waters. This doesn't require that the wind is some simply a completely natural thing, of course. The ancient reader doesn't simply think these things are natural like we do in the 21st century. The writer of Genesis very easily could have understood the Ruach as something which looks like wind to our eyes, but truly is a spirit from a supernatural perspective. While our first instinct might be to hear that the Ruach Elohim was a spirit, and therefore automatically think of the Holy Spirit, or God the Father's Spirit, as an agent of chaos, the wind spirit might have been understood as something more keen to an animal rather than a person, similar to how the chaotic waters are pictured as the chaotic sea serpent leviathan in many other biblical texts. Given the chaotic nature of wind, it shouldn't be a surprise. In support of interpreting the Ruch Elohim as something like a wind, Dr. Sargent adds, the fact that Genesis 1-2 is constructed of three disjunctive clauses suggests that the parenthetical nature of these clauses, descriptions of the circumstances into which Elohim spoke in Genesis 1-3, holds true for all three clauses and not just 2-A and B. He adds, while Childs is quick to point out that this grammatical repetition does not demand that Ruach Elohim be part of chaos, for it it may point toward a continual action over against chaos. Additionally, he says, it has still led some to propose that 1-2-C extends the description of chaos. 
A big help in this passage could have been the Hebrew word merhefet, as in the Ruch Alukim was merhefet al panei hamayim, or in English was hovering over the face of the waters. But the meaning of this word merhefet is not certain. It is translated a myriad of ways, including hovering, flap, shake, flutter, hover, brooding, or circulating, among other things, which all imply a personal aspect. But the problem is that the word merhefet is only used one other time in the same verb form in the entire Hebrew Bible, which is not enough to get a firm grasp on how it was used. The other instance is in reference to the activity of a mother bird in relation to her younglings, which is vague in itself, while we do have other ancient cousin languages where a similar word is used, we don't have a full picture of how to interpret the word. Therefore, many scholars have argued it should be interpreted as swept or sweeping, which are a little more vague and don't imply a personal aspect given that we don't have many reasons to say one way or the other for the specific word. To put more bluntly, Wind and spirit can both be seen as sweeping over the waters, so the word merhefe is not helpful. In favor of a more spiritual interpretation of the Ruach, German scholar Eckhart Fromm points out how Ezekiel 37, 1-14 shows a vision of how God puts his Ruach within a number of dead bodies lying in the middle of a valley to make them live again. Another important reference to Ruch occurs in Psalm 104.30, which says, When you, God, send forth your Ruch, they, the living creatures, are created, and you renew the face of the earth. This verse is of particular significance for the interpretation of Genesis 1, 1-2, in that it also uses the verb Ra to create. Ezekiel 37 and Psalm 104 demonstrate that at least to some biblical authors, there was a close link between Ruch and the concept of creation and conception. While Ezekiel 37, 1-14 is certainly a reference to God's divine spirit being associated with life, the ambiguity of Ruch in Psalm 104:30 allows for other possible interpretations. Given how Genesis 1 never describes God's Ruch in Genesis 1-2 as creating anything, many translators translate the word Ruch as breath in Psalm 104, since we at least know that God's words played an effect in creation in Genesis 1, while we don't know with any certainty that the Ruch Elohim created anything. With that being said, many scholars argue it is the Ruch Elohim that creates in Genesis 1, due to the close correlation between wind, breath, and spirit in the word Ruach. Said scholars interpret the Ruach Elohim as essentially God's breath, metaphorically or literally, going about creating the heavens and the earth at the command of God. It does seem like an interesting coincidence that Right after the Ruch Elohim is said to be sweeping over the waters, the very next verse describes God speaking for light to appear. At the same time, it could very easily be a mere coincidence, so the mere placement 
isn't incredibly useful. While very few scholars would say that God actually literally spoke with a mouth and a tongue, it would still be really odd to say that the breath or wind that God was going to use to speak when he gave each of the commands was previously hovering or sweeping over the waters. While Genesis 1-2 is completely ambiguous on what role the Ruch Elohim played, whether it be no role or a big one in the entire passage, said scholars would take passages like the poetic Psalms, Psalm 33-6, super literally, where it comments on creation saying, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry hosts by the Ruch of his mouth. The biggest problem with the whole Ruach idea is that in nearly every instance where Ruach is mentioned in reference to creation, it can be interpreted as either breath, spirit, or wind. In this situation, the writer of Psalm 33.6 could very easily be saying that the heavens were made by God's speech and the same for the starry host due to his breath. There's no specific reason why this needs to refer to the Ruch Elohim of Genesis 1-2, simply because the same word is used. The word Ruch is actually a quite common word, given its multiple ways it could be used. At the same time, one could argue that it would be a very interesting coincidence for the word Ruch to be used in the context of creation so many times. But that shouldn't be a surprise, given how ruach is often used for breath, and God's breath is what creates everything in Genesis 1. There's more though. Isaiah 40.13 uses a similar phrase, ruach Adonai, to describe how Adonai God is so transcendent and incomparable in greatness to everything else. It says, who comprehends the Ruch of the Lord, or gives him instruction as his counselor? The whole chapter has a major theme of creation in mind, so it's interesting to see the theme of God's Ruch in the same context of creation, but many scholars think the reference to Ruch should be interpreted as a reference to the mind of God, due to how words like understand, instruct, enlighten, taught, and knowledge are used. What stands out is that Ruch Adonai is not seen as separate from God. Whatever it should be translated, whether it be Spirit of God, Mind of God, Ruch Adonai is a reference to specifically God, rather than a spirit apart from God that does his will or something like that. Given how an ancient Israelite would have noticed how breath, wind, and the divine world are often both not visible to the naked eye, it's possible that the writer of Genesis 1-2 would have seen the Ruach Elohim as both wind and spirit. The wind of God essentially being the concrete and vivid image of the spirit of God, as Gordon Winham argued. Put another way, it would be basically the ghostly Casper-like expression of God going about creating. Another possibility that could bring clarity to all of these creation texts where a Ruach is mentioned could be where the Ruach Elohim in Genesis 1-2 is at least in some way the wind, breath, and spirit of God. In this view is that wind or spirit that allows God to speak as if coming from out of God's spiritual lungs into physical manifestation and from his words come order, 
life and creation. As mentioned before, there is a similar phrase, Rach Adonai, or Spirit of the Lord, which seems to refer to the same thing as the Hebrew Ruach Elohim, Spirit, Breath, or Wind of God, in many situations, and therefore we can look at those uses to see if that gives us a of what could be being referred to in Genesis 1-2. We don't have time to go through all of the different times the Spirit of God or Spirit of the Lord phrases are used in the Old Testament, but the NET Bible for Genesis 1-2 notes that elsewhere in the Old Testament, the phrase refers consistently to the divine spirit that powers and energizes individuals. This is true of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament as well. On the other hand, Dr. John Walton says a thorough study of the use of the phrases Spirit of God and Spirit of the Lord in the Old Testament results in a fairly clear profile of the revelation given to the Israelites and their resulting understanding. They understand the Spirit of the Lord not as a separate entity, but as an extension of Yahweh's power and authority. In this sense, it was understood as something like the hand of the Lord. While there are certainly similarities, it seems like the phrase Spirit of God emphasizes the activity or power of God in a more general sense, including his creative and sustaining work throughout the world, compared to how the mention of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament tends to emphasize the personhood of the Spirit, separate from God the Father, but still part of the Godhead, particularly in relation to the sanctifying work within believers and the church. It's worth noting that there is no specific reason which proves the Spirit of God isn't the Holy Spirit. Pretty much everyone who believes in the Holy Spirit's existence agrees it's possible they could refer to the same thing. The challenge is figuring how likely it is that they are the same. Probably the strongest argument is where the writer of Luke seems to associate the Holy Spirit with the Spirit of the Lord. For clarity, Dr. John Walton sums up the scenario. Peter sees the action of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel concerning the Spirit of the Lord being poured out. He adds, this does not mean that Joel's audience understood the Ruach of the Lord, my spirit, as a reference to the third person of the Trinity, but it does mean that in the case of Joel 2.28, the Holy Spirit was behind the activity attributed to the Spirit of the Lord. Walton rightly continues, if that ruach was not used as a phrase to communicate anything Trinitarian to the initial audience, then its use alone cannot give guaranteed evidence of the involvement of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Walton would interpret the phrase Spirit of God like the writers of the Old Testament could have been referring to an entity that we call the Holy Spirit when it mentions the Spirit of God, but the phrase in other places could also refer to God the Father's own spirit, something else caused by God the Father, or spirit like an angel sent by God. As we mentioned before, there is a lot of ambiguity in the Hebrew, and therefore the phrase could possibly refer to God himself, but also an entity completely separate from God. What Walton doesn't say about the Luke passage is that the writers of the New Testament aren't always attempting to make a historical claim about who they refer to and even if they were. The writer simply thinking that doesn't necessarily mean God inspired Luke to think that. Let me remind you that scripture is inspired in what intends to teach 
rather than every single thought given by the author. While rare, an obvious moment where the phrase Ruch Adonai is certainly not part of the Trinity is in 1 Kings 22, 22-24, where the Spirit of the Lord is depicted as a deceiving spirit, completely separate from God. We know this because God asks who will deceive Ahab, and there is a moment of discussion from his divine counsel just for the Ruch to offer its assistance. If it wasn't already clear, it's theoretically possible that the Spirit of God is the same as the Holy Spirit, but it's not described in all of the same ways. For example, Exodus 15.10 speaks of God blowing with his Ruch and the sea covering the Egyptians. We don't see anything like that in regards to the Holy Spirit. The New Testament also never describes the Holy Spirit as creating or giving life to people. The Spirit of God is most often described as God's spiritual manifestation, not something that is a separate person from God. This makes it difficult because in many ways it seems like they would have no way of differentiating some type of spiritual manifestation of God the Father compared to the Holy Spirit and therefore we shouldn't expect them to. At the same time, they clearly differentiated other spiritual beings, so there was some type of awareness there. While it's theoretically possible that mentions of the Ruach Elohim were the same, we can't simply point to similarities and assume they must be the same thing as the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't explicitly say one way or the other. It could refer to the Holy Spirit in some situations. It could refer to God the Father's Spirit in other times, or maybe even something totally different. But the writers give no indication that there was any difference in person, and therefore it would be a big jump to say that every single time the Spirit of God is mentioned, that it refers to the Holy Spirit. There is some indication that the Ruch Elohim of Genesis 1-2 is the same entity as the God mentioned in the rest of Genesis 1. Genesis 1-1 starts by saying, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-2 then says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Hypothetically, let's just say that Genesis 1-1 is referring to God the Father. Well, what's to say that God the Father's physical manifestation is His Spirit mentioned here? And that is what is referred to as the Spirit that was hovering over the waters. If the Spirit of God is simply just a manifestation of God the Father in spirit form, well, we have little evidence to go against that idea. Then in Genesis 1-3, it goes back to speaking about only God creating. It seems very odd to mention the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2 just for it to not do anything else until the very end of the chapter. And that's of course assuming that's who God was referring to when he said, let us make man in our image. In other words, if the Ruch Elohim is not the same thing as God in the rest of the passage, the text doesn't explicitly say the Ruach Elohim does anything else in the narrative of Genesis 1. It seems rather odd that it would be mentioned just for it to not even do anything besides simply hover. Unlike Genesis 8-1, the Ruach Elohim of Genesis 2 doesn't seem to do anything. Say for example that the Ruach Elohim is the Holy Spirit, it would be extremely odd for it to be in Genesis 1-2, which is background information of the narrative just for it not to do anything for the rest of the passage. Rather, if the Ruch Elohim isn't simply just a wind, the context seems to imply that the same Ruch Elohim that was over the waters is either the same God that is doing the creating or the very words of God that are being spoken. Put a different way, this would be like if I started a story with 
In the beginning, my grandma was in heaven creating meatballs, but then the ghostly spirit of my grandma was on earth. Grandma said, let the food appear. It's implied from the context that the grandma doing the cooking in line three is still in spirit form. There is no need for the phrase spirit of grandma to be mentioned later because it's implied that the form grandma is in spirit form. This seems to fit with all of the other instances in the Old Testament where the writers portray the spirit of God as a manifestation of himself in a spirit form rather than a separate person from God the Father like in the New Testament. In summary, Genesis 1-2 is horribly ambiguous on what exactly the Ruch Elohim does and even is in Genesis 1. Is the Spirit of God the Holy Spirit? Maybe, but is the Spirit of God what is mentioned in Genesis 1-2? Or is the Ruch Elohim of Genesis 1-2 just a gust of wind, a divine wind unrelated to God, God the Father's presence, or the breath that God speaks with? With so many possibilities and so little reason to conclude the Holy Spirit is in Genesis 1-2, how could anyone confidently conclude it was the Holy Spirit? Anyways, what did I miss? What do you think? Comment below.